This program is brought to you by Genly Productions. At genlyproductions.com, you can find resources to nourish and inspire, including home retreat kits, home study courses, books, and accessories. You can also join our free Emerging Icons video series, or sign up to get good mail the old-fashioned way and receive our full-color, magazine-ish catalog in your mailbox. I work on anti-trafficking efforts in terms of developing um, coalitions and partner with um, different government groups, law enforcement and NGOs. I'm Jen Lee, and you're listening to Retrospective. My guest today is Phil Gaisley, um, uh, who's been a friend for many years. Thanks for talking to us today, Phil. You bet. Um... I was interested to talk just a little bit at the beginning about your work with anti-trafficking because it's one of these topics that people are hearing more and more about, um, often through celebrities who Mm -hmm. are not always um, the best source of information, Mm -hmm. but people are starting to realize and have an awareness that this is an issue and a problem, but then... um, there's not always a gap to connect people with what to do about it or how to be involved or take action or what, where you even start to address a problem like this that's become really global in scale. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came into this work and how you're connecting the people that you work with with real tangible solutions? Yeah, well, I mean... I think that it's kind of a interesting issue because it's become like the flavor of the month as a social justice concern. Right. And that has definitely a good side to it in terms of people being aware and advocacy and being aware of hotlines that people can call into if they come across potential case situations and things like that. But there's also another side where for those of us that work in the field, it's um, very time consuming, you know, to um, to give awareness to people that isn't necessarily going to bring about the most effective change. And so we have to really think through um, carefully what it really means to put a stop to something that's so horrific and get across the horror of what it is. And how I got involved in it was I was working in refugee resettlement back in 2000 and um, there was some legislation that was put into place in the United States that meant that refugee resettlement agencies were then involved with anti-trafficking work and that's how I drifted into the issue through my work with refugees. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about what you do now in terms of what parts of the world you're traveling with and who are some of your partners that you're developing programs with and for. Mm -hmm. Well yeah, I mean there's a several different things been going on. I've been doing like um, work with helping the development of programs in several different places like um, Amsterdam and Riga in Latvia and Costa Rica. Been recently um, doing some help with the program in El Salvador. Um, Going to be in Moldova next year. And also um, done a, quite a lot of work in Albania, which has um, become a country that's kind of been dear to my heart. And I've actually been working with um, folks out there and also with the government training law enforcement 
in Albania and we're going to be going back to do that next year so we're looking forward to doing that. The other thing that I'm heavily involved in is an anti-trafficking coalition where I live in Kern County in California where all of the police and the NGOs and men, mental health and health have all gathered together and are working together in an amazing way to deal with the issue in that part of California and it's been so exciting to see the way that people have really come together in a very organic kind of natural grassroots kind of a way to, to work on the issue which has been a thrill to see. And before you start doing this, building this coalition around the issue of trafficking, did these groups in California have a history of working collaboratively on other projects? In this case, they did, and that really made a difference. Um, a lot of them have already had experience of working on domestic violence and working on um, sexual assault related issues as well. So it was a really good, it was kind of a natural extension to look at the issue of human trafficking from the work that they were already doing and then to bring other people into that. So it's been, it's been amazing to see how it's all fallen together so quickly. And that's been really unique in your experience to see that level of cooperation across groups, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say so, because I think when people talk about collaboration and working together, um, you know, when you're looking, for example, at, um, from an artist's perspective, I think it's much more, it's, well, generally it's less contrived. It's like there's a willingness of a give and take and a flow that can kind of develop through that at least hopefully whereas in a non-profit kind of a situation you're dealing with people with jobs with job descriptions you've got a culture of living off of grants um, where um, sometimes there can be some competitiveness in a way that you don't see in other types of situations also people can come together in more of a contrived environment and I think that um, sometimes that can make it a challenge where it takes a lot of time to build trust and um, the advantage of this one in California I've been working with is that a lot of the relationships were already established and that helped it to grow in a healthier way, I think. Mm. In terms of the work I'm doing right now, I'm doing technical assistance work with a number of different organizations, um, mostly with faith-based communities within an organization called Youth with a Mission. I'm also working on a research project with the Laboratory to Combat Human Trafficking and uh, spearheading an anti-trafficking coalition in uh, Kern County in California and uh, doing quite a lot of travel in some other countries as well including Moldova, Albania, Latvia. Um, I've basically been hitting all the countries that end with an A kind of lately mm -hmm. so <laughs> so yeah so um, so that's kind of what I'm up to with that. So can you tell us when it comes to human trafficking what are you actually seeing right now in the work that you're doing and in the places you're traveling? Yeah, um, the interesting thing is it varies a lot from city to city. And just to talk about the United States, because that's what I'm most familiar with, um, a lot of cities, for example, sex trade activity is not so much in your face on the streets, but it's actually on the internet in terms of Backpage.com, Redbook.com, and different places like that, which obviously we're thinking through um, how those websites affect um because they're being used for people to be victimized. Um, in Bakersfield, I recently was in a situation where I was out with an outreach team that saw women actually sitting outside a motel 
on chairs just waiting for clients to come to the hotel. It was like being in Amsterdam again. And this was in California. And uh, it was just a, a crazy thing to see. And we got to visit and talk with some of them and begin to um, look at how we can come alongside to provide help and assistance. And and I think one of the big things with that, is with the sex trade, is actually talking with sex workers and getting that the perspective of people that are involved in the sex trade rather than just looking at it from outside from a moralistic standpoint in terms of addressing some of the complexities that go along with that issue. And then with forced labour, it's... um. We're seeing um, sweatshop situations with factories. Um, we're seeing people trafficked into the agricultural industry still in a large way in uh, numerous cities and states across the US. Um, we're also seeing young boys and girls that are teenagers being trafficked in terms of selling things, you know, in terms of magazine crews, um, selling perfume. I even came across a situation a couple of weeks ago of boys being used to sell um, cleaning products door-to-door. Um, -door. And sometimes these kids are being trafficked to sell stuff, but they're also being used by traffickers to do stakeouts or burglaries as well. And so these are kind of some of the things that we're currently seeing going on. I think one thing I appreciate about the approach you're taking is that instead of creating some silver bullet solution where you're just packaging one set of recommendations and sending it all over the world, is that you're really taking the time to be specific and to really research and to talk to the people involved so that the um, solutions you're creating have the kind of nuance that they really need to be effective. Yeah, I really don't think there's any other way that it can be looked at. It is a very complex issue. That's why human trafficking cases, you know, when it comes to people that work in law enforcement and legal services, it's very, very difficult to try a case. And so a lot of human trafficking situations get tried as other things in terms of sex assault and kidnapping and, and other charges because it is a very complex issue. So we do have to look at each situation in an individual kind of a way in terms of how it's addressed and how we communicate so it's not just on from a victim service perspective that we do that and that everything we do has a victim-centered approach to it but it's also that we're looking at prevention from a specific perspective as well as I was saying earlier in that kind of a way and if we're doing those two things then we're doing right by the desire for prosecution of traffickers but we're also doing right by genuinely serving the people that are that are being victimized and people that become survivors mm. yeah I just wanted to go back you know with the question you're asking about kind of the celebrity culture aspects of social justice issues because actually there are some celebrities that are very well informed on issues in terms of how they communicate but at the same time I think it's sometimes it's indicative of people looking for a cause and sometimes when you're just looking for a cause, you can get involved in a way where there's like an unhealthy regurgitation of information that isn't always helpful to the issue that you're addressing. I mean, one example of that that I can think of is that um, there was a statistic with human trafficking that was used in the early 2000s, about 40,000 um, sex workers coming to um, Athens for the um, Olympics. 
And that statistic then got used afterwards for the Winter Olympics in Vancouver, the Republican and Democratic conventions when uh, Obama was in Denver, I remember. It was used for the World Cup in Germany. <laughs> you know, that same that was used like over and over again. It was even used actually for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, which if you think about it, it's crazy. You've got 200,000 people coming for an event and there's going to be 40,000 sex workers. I mean, so there are things that get fed in information where sometimes things aren't being thought through and it can actually make the movement look rather silly in terms of its understanding and the, of the gravity and the sadness of what's really going on in people's lives in this mm. so what kinds of what kinds of information are helpful what types of awareness does make a difference and what I think it's hard to be someone who comes across this issue and not be just so overwhelmed by the tragedy of it mm-hmm. and feel like so far removed from being able to make a diff to make a difference so how how do you see being the most effective way to like not just educate people but also really empower them well and i think that's the key i mean i think that there's been a lot of communication that has taken place in this that hasn't empowered people that hasn't really given people tools of things they can specifically do there's been a lot of talk that has been really in terms of fundraising and those kinds of things rather than engaging people in the lives of real people and so and uh, and i think what that does um <clears throat> What that does is um, brings about a um, way of thinking that doesn't consider the gravity. I don't know if you remember, there was a book that I gave you a couple of years ago that really impacted me called Acedia and Me by Kathleen Norris. And that book... um, really impacted me a lot because the whole language of that book in terms of how we, you know we've become almost inoculated to tragedy within our culture it really spoke to me about that and um and i think that that can be an aspect of this problem in terms of not seeing the gravity of it it's like watching the news back in bakersfield near where i live and you see um a news thing where like somebody says oh somebody was shot and killed in a parking lot or something and then it immediately goes to oh and Kobe Bryant scored 40 points for the Lakers you know like without kind of there's barely a breath in between the two and it kind of speaks of the lack of sense of gravity that we have and so what I try and do is to balance that level of really understanding what we're talking about at the same time as giving people real things to do so for example, um, the biggest problem with human trafficking in the United States really is with at-risk youth, you know, and, um, and human trafficking is defined in terms of both forced labor and commercial sex. So um, a lot of people tend to focus on the commercial sex aspects of that mm-hmm. and not focus on the forced labor which can be horrific if you're being told that you've got to go work at this place for 14 16 hours a day and if you try and run away that these people are going to go back and harm your family that's what we're talking about here you know in a sex trade situation we're talking about uh, a girl that may have ended up being pimped out by a boyfriend but then the next thing you know they're being given just red bull and energy bars just to keep going to service you know 20 to 30 men a day I mean this is the kind of thing that we're talking about and these things are happening in our communities across the US everywhere so outreach to out-risk youth is huge 
in terms of building trust and building relationship, connecting people to right people, right services, reconnecting with family, um, doing research, doing community needs assessments in communities. People can get out there and talk to people. This has resulted in cases, you know, in certain places um, that I've worked in. Um, doing awareness and prevention. A lot of people think that just doing awareness is enough, but awareness and prevention aren't necessarily the same thing. So with prevention, what we're talking about is working with specific vulnerable populations, with vulnerable communities. So who are those vulnerable communities where you live? Is it immigrants? Is it migrant farm workers? Is it people related to the sex trade within a certain city or a certain situation? Who are the people that are vulnerable? It's going to vary from one place to another. Sometimes with labor, it's homeless families. You know, the, the majority of people that are homeless now in the United States are, are families in a lot of cases. And the number one reason they're actually homeless is because of unpaid medical bills. And so coming alongside and working on these issues so so research is a big part of that too and then also awareness and um, and prevention so what we do is we design prevention specifically for the communities we're working with so we have a program um, an organization i work with called the laboratory to combat human trafficking we actually have a specific design program for prevention in terms of refugee communities so um, i do a, i work on human trafficking with a mandated parenting class at a family assistance center for example back in california so one of the things we're trying to get people to think is being specific about who you're focused on because that's going to make a difference the other big thing is that we can end human trafficking as part of the solution by not even thinking about human trafficking. If we're talking about wholeness in families, if we're talking about healthy principles of relationships, if we're communicating these things in our schools, if we're communicating about um, fair trade issues, if we're talking about our purchasing power, if we're really visiting these things in constructive ways, then looking at the parallel movements about human trafficking and also looking at the root causes of poverty and homelessness and these dynamics actually plays into the prevention of it taking place in the first place. So those are the kinds of things and then um, so advocacy obviously is an aspect of that in terms of business and legislation and then of course we've got media and the arts you know that's kind of the final piece to me is that I think artists have been used in the anti-trafficking movement so far to be both a voice and a fundraising tool and <clears throat> there's a side of that that I think is great but there's also a side of that where I think that artist communities could be involved in a much more constructive way in terms of um, the where they're traveling, how they're communicating about the issue. Um, educating media has been a big part of what we've had to do because people talk about human smuggling as human trafficking when they're actually legally two different crimes, for example. So, so feeding that education in. And then the final aspect I would say in this is that when it comes to the indie side of artist communities, that there's a lot that the anti-trafficking movement, I think, can learn from coming alongside and looking at how collaboration is taking place and the philosophical influence of the arts and how that ties into how we actually work together on this issue in terms of a respect for one another in terms of how it can function so i think there's things that we can learn from that and do you want to say just a little bit more about the connection you see between 
artists and culture? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing about that is that I think that when you look at history, there's an assumption among a lot of artists that the influence that they have is towards other artists. You know, art history can be perceived as a very kind of in-house activity where we're just kind of looking at each other. Whereas I think when we look at the influence within culture, it's so much a wider thing that music and art and, you know, every, all different forms of art um, directly affect how people think. I look back at the poetry in World War One, for example, with Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen and Rupert Brooke and those guys. And, you know, our framework for understanding World War One to some extent has been framed by poetry, which is remarkable. Um, how much of our culture now is being framed by alternative music that's now being communicated and distributed in a way that it never has before? How is that going to look 10 years from now in terms of culturally how we think and how we relate to one another? And so, um, you know, I think that the, the influence goes much further than I think a lot of artists realize from a philosophical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite things about coming to New York is um, you and I being early birds and our spouses being later birds. And we get to sit in this wonderful kitchen and talk <laughs> about um, stuff with our coffee early in the mornings. And um, yeah, so one of the things... Um, we're talking about is how the the indie movement generally is trying to straddle this middle road between on the one side you've got the business world which in some respects is anathema but then you've also got the academic world of kind of the ivory tower side of academia which is also um, considered anathema too to some people and I think that what the indie movement in various different fields um, and and I would I would actually include like self care and soul care as an aspect of this even that people are straddling this middle road which is considered a much greater reality in terms of how that's being looked at where there is a side of academia that has to be looked at there's a side of business that has to be looked at but I'm not going to fall into the trap of diving into either one I'm going to kind of treat it with kid gloves on both ends and kind of walk this middle road of how I want to do it which most of the time actually relates to real people in a more effective way I mean this is exactly what I do in terms of anti-trafficking research with the wonderful people that I'm working with in research is that is trying to make research something that is participatory as possible. It's an approach that deals with real issues, it deals with real cases if you come across them within the research, and um, and it's not something that on the one hand is going to be used as a tool in term, just in terms of funding, but on the other hand it's not going to be used just as a tool in terms of something that's going to sit on a desk. It's something that's actually going to get used and impact people's lives, and I think you know with the indie with with filmmaking and with um and with music it's very much and soul care i think it's very much the same thing well it's an interesting picture for you to paint because i think that i think that i can see it really specifically with like the online artist community i can see the struggle of creating this pathway in between because there is an extraordinary pressure and pull towards commercializing what people are doing so people are starting out often with very unique and artful offerings 
but they feel a pressure to have a certain level of success or, or appeal. So then they're paying other people to tell them how to commercialize mm-hmm. and to market what they're doing more effectively, which really pulls them in that commercial direction. Or on the other hand, people, one thing that came up for in a conversation this week is how there's not really social proof standards established yet. Mm-hmm. So in order to have social proof, people then who are, say, doing really unconventional paths as online writers are still having to feel like, unless they write a New York Times bestselling book, yeah, they're actually having to cross mediums and go back into the old way to get social proof that validates their new way because there's no new assessment of what's valuable or what's making a difference um, inside a new route. And so I just feel that pressure all the time to say, well, and also with people's own issues with credibility, because mm-hmm. if they have an unconventional education themselves, mm-hmm. you can have this, well, what right do I have? Right. What right do I have mm-hmm. to um, lead up anti-trafficking coalitions because I don't have a PhD mm-hmm. in social change or whatever right, you know right, yeah right? so you can feel invalidated if those pieces are mm-hmm. missing and then it's a real struggle to stay true to an alternative path yeah oh i i live in that insecurity all the time you know in various ways you know but i think that um the world is changing in terms of education and i think that the the this indie aspect of this is causing that um I did some research a few years ago on vocational education and um, the United States was behind Bosnia on a per capita basis in terms of vocational ed, just to give you no, no disrespects to Bosnia, but you know, that would be a kind of a shocking thing to to hear. And so um, there's a move back towards vocational education. There is a move back to the use of our hands. There's a move back to the concept of apprenticeships because people have realized that you know, this so-called pure form of education that we've been looking at really isn't cutting it for where a lot of people want to go in their life. And um, and when it comes to that issue that you're hitting on in terms of the commercialization, I kind of think of it in terms of that people start out as with something that's really a byproduct. You have a philosophy, you have a thought, you produce good work, and it's a byproduct of your philosophy. Mm-hmm. You see, and I think what can happen is where it gets commercialized and where it can get messy is you basically take your byproduct into a product. You know, now I don't mean that in a practical level in terms of selling stuff. I mean that that philosophically you've made the switch from having where it's a byproduct is you're thinking to yourself, I have this way of thinking and I want to communicate that. And everything that I do is simply an outworking and an expression of how I think and what I believe in terms of how I can help others, really, to a large extent. But when it moves into products, then you've gone into a place where you're no longer serving the philosophy. You're actually serving production. You're serving the need to get things done. And so the original philosophy gets lost. 
you know and i think that's kind of where the problem can be and so part of my passion in that is to keep people no matter how far they go with the product you know keeping people in the pace of a byproduct that everything that you're doing really is just a result of how you think it's a result of a set of values that you're living out in terms of how you take care of yourself within the work that you do and those kinds of dynamics so that's kind of how i've tended to think of that that's really interesting i think another part of this is that you know in terms of having a philosophy that you're living out in terms of um how we keep sane within work that we do and the pressures that we have in life within the different things that we deal with is that um, if we're developing um, different things like you've been doing for example with the productions you've been working on that we kind of keep a culture that and I did some work at the University of Alabama, Alabama, Birmingham a few years ago that really helped me with this um, with a guy named Malcolm Marler who's amazing and um, we used to talk all the time about a culture of invitation you know and I think that this whole concept is really really key of you know that there's a difference between kindly inviting someone with either no condition or very little condition to be involved in something and to connect in something rather than kind of using this high-powered manipulative way of communicating which could be something like I want you to do this and it's going to be for this period of time when you know full well that two years from now they could still be doing that you know um, you know, so connecting with people and just having a mindset where you're inviting people to things rather than asking people to do them or really subconsciously using people to get things done, I think is or a very key people part. think that they need what you're doing oh in my order gosh. to be okay. Right, absolutely. Like you will not be okay without this. You will not be successful That's without this. That's a really this. good point. You will be left behind the pack. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to me, when you've gone that far, you've moved from byproduct to product. You've moved into a place of, you know, <clears throat> believing your own press a little too much <laughs> in terms of, you know, if if we're keeping a realistic view of ourselves, then again, we're going to live out of values that help us to take care of, care of ourselves so that we can be the help to others that we're meant to be. So that culture of invitation has been been a big part of that for me in terms of really relating on a grassroots level and not laying out huge conditions in terms of what it means to work with people and connect with them and um, Malcolm support team network um, project that we worked on there was a wonderful beginning of that journey for me so can you just give people an idea if they want to look at their own work that they're doing whether they're independent artists mm -hmm. or whether they're doing social work in their community or wherever they're coming from, if they're wanting to ask themselves, okay, am I, am I presenting opportunities to people as invitations or am I doing something else? Are there some like kind of criteria or <laughs> some kind of checkpoints that people can use to say like, okay, have I crossed over the line yet? Or am I still in the realm of invitation? What would you suggest that people look for? Well, I think a lot of this is going with your gut, uh, to, I think, to some extent, in terms of, you know, am I pressuring someone too much? You know, I haven't heard back from this person. Have I sent them half a dozen emails in the last two weeks or something? You know, is there a, is there a way in which we want it so badly 
that we're not actually relating healthily to the individual because of how badly we want this person or we want what they have to offer. You know, I think, you know, I mean, as you know, I mean, I I kind of do all this within kind of a a faith journey as well. Um, But within that, I think there's an element where we all kind of live by faith in a certain way in terms of a trust where if this person doesn't work out, there's always going to be somebody else there. You know, if this doesn't happen, and I think that we can live a lot more chill by thinking that way rather than kind of feeling this pressure is of of this idolizing of a certain project or a certain individual you know it's going to be the end of the world if this person isn't involved in doing this with me so i I would kind of express it like that probably off the top of my head (laughs) so there's kind of like an open-handedness and a right hold and a trust that there's more than one route or way or audience or exactly exactly yeah well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Phil. You bet. Great to, great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Retrospective. I'm your host, Jen Lee. Meet me back here for more conversations and stories about where we are and how we got here on Retrospective. <laughs>